Prepare to be astonished. It's that time again. Let's get started. From the Clatsop County Historical Society, an adventure in history with Matt Burns and Alana Quila. You should never be allowed to talk to people. Some people without brains do an awful lot of talking. And now, with today's adventure, it's Mac and Alana. Good evening and welcome back to An Adventure in History. I'm Alana Quila with Providence Seaside Hospital, here this evening with Mac Burns, Executive Director of the Clatsop County Historical Society. Welcome back. Yeah. You've been on vacation. I have. <laughs> 17 days. Was 17 mag- days? It was magical. That's crazy. That's too yeah. long. I, it, it felt like it when I got home, but like in the <laughs> midst of it, we just kept going. So it was lovely. And all in the same location? No, that was the thing. Uh, so we went to multiple locations, the girls uh, and I, and Mark wow. met us here and there. And uh-huh. So it was fun. It was a good like end of summer. Still uh, Sun River? Yes. Sun River was the big, big chunk in the middle. The base of operations. Exactly. Thank you, Mom and Dad. You, you, like, you <laughs> like Sun River. We do. Guaranteed sunshine. Love it. And um, it's, it's been added to my list of places I should go because of your your promotion of it. I know. I love it. <laughs> you bike everywhere. It's lovely. And then, yeah, back to school. Everyone's back to school now in North Clatsop, or in Clatsop County. Finally. It's about time. I know. I was kind of ready to. <laughs> <laughs> One child less. <laughs> One child less. Yeah. But September 11th. It is, yes. Have we ever, I don't know if we've ever had a show on September 11th before. I don't recall that we have. Yeah. So we have to, of course, do the... The obligatory, where were, where were you? you? What were you? Well, I was at college, the University of Miami, um, mm-hmm. and sadly, uh, I actually um, had a student. I was an RA, resident assistant mm-hmm. in the dorms, and, and one of the girls on my floor did lose her father um, oh, wow. in the, that day, and she knew pretty quickly because, of course, we were watching it live on television. We are East Coast over mm-hmm. there, um, and she couldn't get hold of him, so... Yikes. Yeah. yeah. Wow. So, yeah. But, um, yeah, quite, a, I mean, because Miami, quite a few people from New York. So it is, lots New, it of, is New York South. Yeah. Lots of stories <laughs> of relatives that were able to escape or were mm. across the street because across the street, there's still tens of thousands of people um, oh, I mean, yeah. Yeah. at all those surrounding buildings. So, yeah. How about you? Where were you? We were in Vermont. Okay. And my uh, mother-in-law actually worked just like a block or two away and we couldn't get a hold of her she lives in uh lived in at the time in queens okay astoria (laughs) queens and uh walked all the way home and it took her like eight hours yep couldn't get a hold of her the entire time sure yeah phone communication was jammed yep absolutely and she was like there's no public transportation at this point so she and a bunch of other people were like i guess we should just walk yeah and they totally like walked across whatever right not the brooklyn bridge i can't remember which bridge it is but uh totally walked home and i haven't read stories yet i guess it's time but i'm sure there's some very interesting accounts like i would be curious about your mother-in-law about the people she met that day and what they said to each other because here she was so she couldn't use her phone she couldn't talk to her family but she had to have found some yeah. something it's not uh, something she likes to talk about sure because she had a lot of colleagues that right. were in those buildings and to this day still does not like admitting that people were jumping oh yeah you know, as of they course. saw flames and realized they were completely trapped and Awful. Um, she just doesn't i mean if you if you mention that she just shakes her head now no yeah no 
Yeah, so. yeah. Well, we, we need to remember, of course, there's lots of um, good people that died that day. Yeah. Hey, I didn't uh, bring a, a printout with me, but just coming up, um, October 1st, mm-hmm. we have the um, grandnephew of Bram Stoker Ooh. come in. He's going to be at the Liberty Theater and give a presentation about Dracula. Oh, fun. Uh, from page to stage to screen. Oh, oh how interesting. <laughs> yeah, it's going to be a lot of fun. Yeah. So I'll have, we'll have more details next week. Because are you the sponsor? Is this, did you? We, did we're bringing have, him in. Yeah. Okay, the yes, historical yes. society is bringing I, him here. I have no sponsor. I wish I had a sponsor. Okay, you are <laughs> the Cause, sponsor. Because it's not cheap. <laughs> yeah, you're it. <laughs> uh, but it's an opportunity. <laughs> yeah. And we couldn't pass it up. Oh, how fun. And so tickets are on sale. We, we will have okay. information next week. Got it. Okay. So check out our website in yep. the meantime. Or big tease, folks. Big, big tease, yeah. But okay. um, Liberty Theater, 7 o'clock, October 1st. Oh, how fun. Great way to and, start October. And the neat October. thing, um, Bram Stoker himself actually toured the Pacific Northwest oh, at one point. So and this is the, what did you say? The, the grandnephew. Grandnephew. Okay. Of Bram Stoker. And his name, what's his name? Doc Ray. Oh, I love that. Because why else? I mean, yeah, Yeah, of course. So anyway, shall we get to uh, the big show here? Let's do Do it. Do you have anything else we need to talk about? No. I can't think of anything else. All right. So as always, the things that happen tomorrow, September 12th, Mm -hmm. uh, for your amusement or your icebreakers or uh, your trivia, 1755. Wow. Giacomo Casanova is sentenced to five years imprisonment in Venice without trial for affront to religion and common decency. <laughs> Casanova. <laughs> common decency. Yes. I like that. That is, yeah, sure. Whatever it is at the time, no trial. 1787, American statesman George Mason suggests the addition of a Bill of Rights to the Constitution modeled on previous state right. declarations, but the motion is defeated. <laughs> Sorry, George. So, not this go around. You're right. Keep Bill trying. of Rights. That's a good idea. It we should have a Bill of Rights. That's a great idea. <laughs> Maybe 10 of them to right. begin with. Uh, 1910. The United States' first known female cop Ooh. is appointed. I like that one. Alice Stevens Wells. And I didn't dig deeper, but by the use of two names, I wonder if she's like the widow of a cop or something. Hmm. But usually, you know, you'll see just the matron is the, kind of the keeper of the jail. And, right. You know, cooker of meals and cleaner. But uh, she was actually a female cop. And do you have where she was? I like, do. LAPD. Oh, go for it. Good for her. Which we just last week. Had, I love it. Had uh, yep. a representative, a former representative. From LAPD and yeah. Yeah, California Highway Patrol. You can check out that so, podcast on KMUN. You can. Good plug. Yeah. Uh, so that was 1910, first cop. Good for her. Female cop. 1944. U.S. Army troops enter Germany for the first time. Right. I don't think it's going to end well for Germany. Right. Uh, 1953, Nikita Khrushchev is the new Soviet leader. Yeah. I wonder if he banged a shoe in <laughs> celebration. Uh, 1950, I do like the banging the shoe. That kind of makes me sure. laugh. Uh, 1953, John F. Kennedy marries Jacqueline Bouvier in uh, Newport, Rhode Island. Oh. 1959, this one's strictly for me. Bonanza premieres on NBC. <laughs> I love Bonanza. <laughs> I can't recall the music, but I know that that's what dun, dun, always... Dun, 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 there we dun, go. Dun, dun. Yeah. And there's actually lyrics. The first episode, they like sing as they're, as they're riding up, and then they never did that again. Oh, fun. We got a right to pick a little fight. Bonanza. Anytime, like, I, I if I've got uh, my son or my daughter in the car, and we're driving, we see, like, a big Vista... I always say, and I, have, I know they have no idea what it means, but I can say, someday, little Joe, this will all be yours. 
<laughs> and they're just like, you're an idiot. And dude. they roll your eyes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I don't even know if they know what it means. <laughs> all right. Um, but what was up with Adam? Adam was like all stuck up and then he leaves. Oh, I don't know. See, I didn't follow the show I either. Know, I know you didn't. Yeah. <laughs> I have no idea what's I, up with Adam. I, I only watch, I'm not that old. I only watch it on reruns. Right. We'll but, but it was it was on three o'clock every day when I got home from school. Right. So I watched it like two or three times a week. Anyway. <laughs> it was uh, on for a long time too. It was, and it was the first uh, color. Oh, it was. It was the first uh, TV, regular TV show in color. Interesting. Uh, 1966, The Monkees premiere on NBC. It's <laughs> a good one. <laughs> Uh, not quite the Beatles. But. Yeah, not quite. Um, 1972, Hopalong Cassidy rides off into the, his last sunset. After nearly 40 years of riding across millions of American TV and movie screens, the cowboy actor William Boyd, best known for his role as Hopalong Cassidy, dies on this day in 1972 at the age of 77. That's oh, kind of young. Yeah. And I remember one time you and I were t- actually talking about does Hopalong Cassidy have a name? And we were like, well, he must have a name, but we didn't know. Right. So, <laughs> so there it so is. So it popped up. <laughs> 1995. This was almost going to be my history highlight of the day, but I knew you wouldn't approve. Right. Not quite. The uh, Harlem Globetrotters game-winning streak ends at 8,829 games. Who'd they lose to? Kareem's All-Stars. And they were in Europe. Oh, wow. That's funny. I remember when they were on Gilligan's Island. Oh. I thought that was ridiculous. Kind of. And have you ever seen the Harlem Globetrotters? I have. They're amazing. They are stupidly entertaining. Oh, my Even goodness. Even if you don't like basketball, it's entertaining. It's great. Good music, good entertainment, yeah. And what a c- good career. I mean, like that, there's the fun of being a basketball player. There you go. Yeah. And I think that was the first time, and I, I don't know what age, it was probably six or seven I saw them, but the gag of the uh, empty bucket that had uh, paper in it instead of water, and you oh. thought you were going to get soaked if you were in the front row. Oh, funny. I don't remember that one. But our uh, history highlight of the day, 1958, the U.S. Supreme Court orders the all-white Central High School in Little Rock, Arkansas to integrate. That's a good one. Brown versus Board of Education. So there we go. Okay. what I miss? Well, 2011, again, just not quite, but in New York City, the 9-11 Memorial Museum opens to the public. So that was hmm. on September 12th, the mm-hmm. day after. Uh, 1919, uh, Adolf Hitler joins the German Workers' Party. Wasn't he like the seventh or eighth member, ninth member? Oh, I don't know. It was like incredibly small. It was like just a bunch of like like angry right? drinking buddies. White and men, he yeah. Like joins it. Powerful. But, but it was a small group. It was like incredibly small, I think. Yes. So also on that note, I did want to point out that in 1913, Jesse Owens was born. He's the nice. track and field athlete who won four medals at the Berlin Olympics in 1936. And he is credited because of the timing. He won so much. He was just like the top of his... The, the world record, he set all these world records. And in Europe, he was known for single-handedly crushing Hitler's myth of Aryan supremacy. It was very insulting. Yes. <laughs> so he was born um, 1913. Good for him. Yeah. Okay, so um, back in April, yes. we mentioned Nellie Flavel was in San Francisco with, with her mom, Mary, and with her sister, Katie, when the earthquake happens and we said, oh, we should read a part of her diary because she talks about the earthquake in her diary. Mm-hmm. So we've had such a full slate. Yes. That <laughs> this is the first opportunity we've had that we didn't have a guest and we really didn't have anything major that we needed to talk about. Right. So we're not going to get through this in the uh, 19 minutes that's left here. But when people so. come to visit here to learn about the Astoria fire, they can learn more about this. 
when they come to the Heritage Museum or sit here? No? Probably not. There's there's oh. the, a three-ring binder of this at the Carriage House Visitor Center okay. where we talk about the Flavels. Online And archives. then there is a little booklet that we printed just her account because so many people kept asking, can you photocopy this three-ring binder oh, of geez. the pages from her diary? <laughs> yeah. And so we, yeah. we printed a little booklet just on the photocopier, and I think we charged like a dollar for it. Okay, carriage So this is just a portion of it, but this is from Nellie's diary. Okay. That she's keeping in 1906. So I feel, uh, April 25th, I feel that I ought to commence to write our experience in the terrible earthquake and fire before certain sensations wear off. Though I am more nervous and feel sadder now than at any time since Tuesday night. I awoke a few minutes before five o'clock on Wednesday morning, and it was just getting to be daylight. Suddenly I felt the trembling and shaking of the house and heard the windows rattling and the bricks grinding, and I knew it was an earthquake, and a very severe one, for I have felt a good many before, but never one so severe as this. I said to Katie, who was in another bed in the same room with me, "'What a terrible quake!' Then we both got out of our beds, and Kay called to Mama, who was in another room, to come, so that if we died, we should all go together. Mary was asleep, M was asleep, um, but the earthquake awoke her, and she came without waiting to dress. The plastering was falling all around us, but we did not seem to be stuck with it, struck with it. We held on to each other, expecting every minute to be crushed to death by the house falling in on us. I threw on a wrapper over my nightgown, but as soon as it stopped shaking... We concluded to dress quickly and go out for fear another earthquake would come, which might be worse, and we wanted to at least be outside and not pinned uh, inside the house. We said to put on warm clothing, for we might have to stay outdoors all night. This was at 11.13 a.m. It was a frightful feeling while we were dressing to think that the house might fall before we could get out. We dressed warmly, but it happened that we got our oldest clothes. We did not comb our hair but we put our hats on and I had on a pair of patent leather high-heeled shoes for they were standing by my bed and naturally took them first uh, since they were the first I could find. We locked our trunks and took the keys though we had not packed them and they were not very full. Mama came out behind us and she made a mistake and left the bag with her jewelry and took another but did not find it until we were out in the street. We refused to go back then though even though she wanted to do so but I told her people always seemed to lose their lives when they went back for valuables. We dressed quicker than we ever did before in our lives. As we went down the steps, everybody seemed to be walking out quietly. It was not, there was not light in the halls, though it was daylight outside. The dust nearly choked us, and we walked over heaps of fallen plaster. One lady walked down the stairs ahead of us with something tied over her head, and she said, Why, you girls have got hats on. Girls have got on your hats. When we got to the office, Mr. and Mrs. Bloom and her were just walking ahead of us. She had on her nightgown, but he was dressed or partly so and had her clothes on his arms. She dressed in the office, but we thought nothing of anything. We were all dazed. I think for everyone was perfectly quiet and all looked very solemn. We started out in the ladies' entrance, but found it locked. Then we walked out the main door, not knowing where we would go, our only thought being to get where the buildings would not fall on us. As we walked out, Mrs. Ford and Courtney came, each carrying a satchel, and she had his arm. She was dressed in a red wrapper with a rail over her head. Mrs. Johnston came leaning on Dr. Johnston's arm. They also each carried satchels, and she wore a wrapper. I wished then that I had brought a satchel, but nothing would have induced me to go back to get it. I saw Chauncey St. John's all dressed and walking slowly along Montgomery Street towards Market, but I never thought of going after him and asking him where we should go or what we should do. 
we all seemed to realize that it was not a case where a man could help us much. We were all in the hands of God. Someone said we'd better get away from under the wires for fear of live one falling, so we went up to Union Square. As we left the hotel, we saw that the top story had fallen in at the Lick House, and as we walked up Sutter Street, we saw all the large plate glass windows lying in fragments on the sidewalk. We walked in the middle of the street, for the sidewalks were piled with brick and glass, etc., which had fallen from chimneys, cornices, and windows. Everyone seemed so quiet. We strolled along slowly, looking in shop windows. As we passed Nathan Donham's beautiful store, we saw the costly bric-a-brac all broken and lying in pieces. In the clothing stores, the figures which were dressed to show suits were fallen down, and they looked like people who had been knocked down. Okay, that's a little creepy. Oh, That yeah. would make me think there was like dead people in there. Right. Yeah. When we came out of the hotel, we saw large fires between us and the ferry. They seemed to start at once. As we walked up to Union Square, we met people walking down, evidently going toward the fire to see where it was. When we reached Union Square, there was a great many people there, and we saw Colonel Wally and his wife and his two children who lived in the Occidental. Mrs. W. and the children were bareheaded. I like that they're like all concerned about wearing hats. I know. And clothing at this point. Yeah. We all talked to Colonel W., and we all concluded it was best to stay where we were for a while for fear of another earthquake, and we would be buried in the debris if we were in the street. As we sat there, we saw many curious sights, which seemed to impress themselves on our minds. There was a group of Japanese men and women sitting on bed comforters on the grass, and the women were dressed in European clothes and all had on yellow furs. There were a number of women with painted faces who seemed to be foreigners and who I think were the chorus singers in the opera. Hmm. Our one large man passed who was bareheaded and had his bare feet in slippers, and his <laughs> overcoat was buttoned close to his neck, and he must have been one of the opera singers. At the Geary Street house next to Cordes building, the upper story had fallen in. The large chimney from Cordes had fallen on it. There were a number of people buried in the ruins. Mm. First, we saw a man dressed in white walking around on the beams of a building which was being built on the corner of Geary and Stockton Street. I called attention to him, and Katie said, He must be a workman to come to work. She did not realize that it was not more than six... O'clock. He seemed not to be able, of course, he wasn't there to work. He seemed yeah. not to be able to find his way down. And at last, a man got a ladder and put it up, but he either was too dazed to see it or could not get across those steel girders. Finally, I saw him descending in the back part of the building, letting himself down in some way. He had hmm. evidently come from the Geary house and was in his nightclothes. Next, we saw a fireman go up a ladder into the second story of the Geary house and then commence to climb like a fly up to the upper stories of the house. He held onto window ledges, etc. He tried all the windows in the top story and finally broke one in. He climbed in and no one went to help him. He looked out and motioned for someone to come, but no one went. Then his voice rang out clear and loud. There are people dying here. Ten or dozen buried alive. Come and help dig them out. Mm. The crowd moved over to the house so we could not see very well, but they brought the people down the stairs. After a while, we saw a woman wrapped in blankets sitting in a chair on the grass near us. We were told she was brought out of that house and that her husband was killed there. The fires kept spreading, and we soon heard that there was no water. The earthquake had tisted, twisted and broken the pipes. About nine or half past, we concluded to walk down to the hotel and see if anyone was there. We found quite a number of people there, and there was a good deal of baggage in the office. Mr. Hooper was there, and he told us to take what we could of our things and then to lock the room and go, for the authorities had told him that the house would have to be blown up in two hours if the wind did not change and take the fires another direction. If the house stood, we could come back and get our things, but at that time there was no wagon to be had at any price. 
We hurried to our rooms, and Katie, when we got there, we found that the door was locked with a Yale lock, and we had left our keys inside the room. We got a table and put a chair on it, and I got up on it at the bathroom window. Katie had pulled it down from the top, and I tore the green shade away, but was afraid that there would be nothing to come down on the other side. Mrs. Harmon was back and forth in the hall and seemed to be packing. She said, break the window, but I could not bear to, although the house did seem to be in ruins. The housekeeper was in the hall. The chambermaids had gone, and she said to wait. She would get a pass key. She went upstairs and came back with a bunch of keys and soon found the right one and let us in. Katie and I each took a sheet off the bed and threw it in our best clothes. I found that mine was too heavy, so then I commenced to throw things back into the trunk. Katie was packing hers. M just stood and said it was no use, but Kay told her she must, so she put most of her things into her trunk. I remember that I had feelings that our trunks would be left anyways and it would make little difference about packing them. I packed up some books, which I thought would a great deal of, and then laid them down when I could just as well have put them into my trunk. But it seemed as if the end had come to everything and that we would not need or want anything more. I did not bring my music, although I really did not remember it in the great haste, for it was in the lower part of the sideboard. We were not 10 minutes in packing our things. Katie went down to the office to see if she could possibly get anyone to take our bags. Okay, so I have to point out the trunks. Yeah. We have Mary's traveling oh, trunk. Do you really? Yeah, it's uh, we, we got it about uh, 10 years ago on one of our trips down to to meet with uh, some of the descendants Mm -hmm. and they gave it to us and it's on exhibit in the Flavel house. It's not in Mary's room, but uh, it's in the closet in Nellie's room. So you can actually see it. And how heavy is that? Do you Uh, recall? I do not know that I've ever touched it or moved it. I mean, cause it just, I mean a trunk, like she's kind of saying, I mean, it's It's just pretty good size. So heavy. (laughs) And then you fill it with things, right? Um, so, uh, Katie, she came back with Mike, a young Irish porter, but he could only help us downstairs with our hand baggage. None of our furniture fell down, nor the pictures from the walls, and we had three vases of flowers, and they were standing when we left. Two of the vases had apple blossoms given to us for Easter, and the other and large vase, which stood in the center, was filled with lilies and meek orange. Okay, her attention to detail is incredible. It and is. In fact, she starts this whole thing out with, I've got to write it while I remember it all. Yes. Well, it's still fresh. They were all white, and as we left, it seemed as if they had been put there for the funeral of the poor old Occidental. Just as Katie and the porter came back to the room, there came another pretty sharp shock of earthquake, and we were not long in getting out, though Mike stayed last and locked the door. We had faint hopes that the fire might not come and we could get our trunks afterward, but I felt pretty certain that I had taken my last look at them when we left. Notwithstanding that we were all so quiet and sort of dazed and awestruck, we would see things that would make us laugh or that would strike us as very ludicrous, even if we did not laugh. As we ran out of the room and down the steps the last time, the first time we did not run, old Mr. Harmon was sitting on a sofa in the hall at the head of the stair where his wife had evidently told him to wait while she got some things as he is old and feeble. And Miss Edna Bloom came running down from the floor above and she was so frightened and excited that she shouted to him as she ran past, why don't you get up and run? What are you sitting there for? The poor old man could not run to save his life. When we were trying to get into our room, Geraldine Bloom, a little schoolgirl, was standing above, looking down through the light well and calling to me as she swung a laundry bag with some of her most cherished possessions. Miss Flavel, the house is going to be dynamited. She was afraid I might not know it and stay too long. As we walked out of the Occidental for the last time, I said to Mike, if we all live, we will pay you, and if not, it will make no difference. (laughs) I'm sure that made him feel good. Sorry, Mike. Yeah. If we all live, uh, we will pay you. But if not, then uh, make no difference. I meant 
that if an earthquake more severe came and destroyed the whole city and us with it, we did not see Mike again, but M wrote to Mr. Hooper and asked if he knew his address. We've not heard yet. So I wonder if they ever paid him. Yeah, yeah. As we started out the door, Kay saw a young man who was employed around the hotel as a sort of runner, and she told him she would give him a dollar to carry her sheet as far as Union Square. So he took it over his shoulder, and M gave him her basket, and she and I together carried my satchel. It was very heavy, and we had to almost run up the hill to keep up with the man, and we were afraid of losing Katie. I was so hot then, and had been so cold the first time I was there, but I had on extra clothes the second time. The young man found us a place on the grass, for the whole square was getting very crowded by this time, with people fleeing from the fire and on the south side of Market Street. So I saw a pawnbroker, I think, uh, who had a store, but they were kind to us, for the woman was sitting on a trunk, and I asked her if we could sit on it also, and she said yes, and made room quickly. Katie was out on the street looking for a conveyance of some kind to take us out on out either to Mrs. Hovey's or Mrs. Simpson's. When she came back, tired from her unsuccessful search for everything and was always engaged, the man laid his overcoat on the wet grass and insisted that she should sit on it as not to catch cold. We happened to have some chocolate in a box which Kay had picked up and brought, so we gave some to the little child and the man. The woman did not care for it. The fires kept coming nearer and nearer, and pretty soon it seemed to be just behind the city of Paris. We were getting pretty uneasy for fear we would be obliged to start to walk and have to leave our things for they were too heavy to carry. We managed to carry our things up near San Fr- St. Fr- Francis to Powell Street, and then we asked different men if they wanted to earn some money carrying things, but no one wanted to work. So now they have money? They couldn't <laughs> pay the first guy, but yeah. they can pay all these guys? <laughs> yeah. Okay. We tried different automobiles, buggies, wagons, but the chauffeurs said they were all employed taking or going to the morgue and hospitals and everything else, and they were engaged. Finally, Kay saw an empty carriage, but just as she got to it, a man was ahead of her, And three women got into it. But the driver promised that he would come back in half an hour if we would stand on that corner. In about 15 minutes, another one came down the street and I motioned to it, for we all knew it was necessary. It was not necessary to wait for the other man, for he could get all he could do. Just as I reached the carriage, a man stepped in, but he was alone. I asked him if if we could not go too, for I found that he was going away on Sutter Street. He said yes, so we got in with our baggage. We saw people standing up on top of the St. Francis looking at the fires. We drove out to Post Street and we saw so many fine buildings and ruins. The Olympia Club and the Concordia Club and the St. Dunstan on Sutter and Van Ness Avenue were all in ruins. Everybody was out on the front steps or sitting on the sidewalks. There were no streetcars running and, of course, no telegraph wires in order. When we got farther out, we began to see the churches in such awful ruins. Our strange man in the carriage came from some downtown hotel And he was a Californian, but not a San Franciscan. When he got out of the carriage, M asked him to tell her what the driver charged. He paid him and then came to see where we were going so as to tell the driver. He said the driver told him to pay what he liked, so he gave him $2.50. When we reached Mr. Simpson's, M asked the driver how much she owed him, and he said, well, I will have to ask you a dollar apiece. But M just gave him a $5 piece, for we felt that none was too much. Mrs. Simpson was at her front door and came out to meet us and made us very welcome. There were a number of ladies sitting on her front steps, and there were piles of baggage on the grass and in her front hall. She asked us once if we had anything to eat, and she told us she had no water but would melt a little ice to make some tea for us. So we had a cup of tea and some bread. Before we went into the dining room, we got our combs out of our satchel and combed our hair in the drawing room. Em and I then walked over to Mrs. Hovey's to see how she fared and if she had any water. 
Emily, one of the servants, was standing out in front of the house. She went around to the back door and went in and locked the front door for us. Mrs. Gladding was just having something to eat in the dining room, and Mrs. H. wanted us to come in and eat, but we told her we'd eaten and we wanted water. She said she had plenty just then, both distilled and other water, so we each took a drink. Her house had only been damaged by a chimney from another house that was falling on against it. Across the street from her, the servant girl in the kitchen um, of the house had been killed by a falling chimney. No, no. Um, it is amazing, this dichotomy between all these things in ruin and yeah. we've got to brush our hair. And if we want some tea, you'll bounce And water. The <laughs> yeah. well, water I get, but. But she does say, I mean, they're just kind of just stunned, right? They're yeah. just going about. They don't know exactly what's happening. Isn't that an amazing firsthand account? Yes. Very <laughs> so, well written. All right. Thank you once again, Nellie. We love that you kept a diary. We've got yes. 30 years of her diary. Oh, it's amazing. So it is pretty incredible. Well, thank you for listening. Go make some history. We'll catch you next week. Thank you for joining us for An Adventure in History. An Adventure in History is created and produced by the Clatsop County Historical Society and brought to you by KMUN.